Hey, welcome to a new episode of Last Call Baseball, number 133. I'm Dorian, and that was a letdown. You mean the introduction? You mean the music? No, because I love the music that DiCarlo made like three years ago. I'm talking about the first round slash wildcard series of the of Major League Baseball. You already know this. All of the series were sweeps. 2 nothing, 2 nothing, 2 nothing, 2 nothing, 2 nothing. Tampa Bay Rays were unbelievably underwhelming. I've, you know what I found that in all of the major sports that have that have had playoff expansions. I'm specifically thinking about the National Football League. Now that the NFL expanded it by one extra team in their playoffs, the past two years you always find there is a huge blowout, and you're like, okay, that team really wasn't a playoff team. And I'm also getting the sense of that in Major League Baseball. But I didn't think that that one team that you would point to and say, you know what, you shouldn't have been playing in the postseason would have been the Tampa Bay Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays now, in consecutive postseasons, have only scored one run against the Cleveland Guardians in 2022, and they scored one run at home, mind you, against the Texas Rangers. I understand that Wander Franco is suspended on administrative leave, whatever you want to call it. I know that Brandon Lau is injured, but to not be able to score one run at home in con- not to score more than one run at home in consecutive games is it's almost too much. And then you go across the country with the Arizona Diamondbacks, or yeah, across the country from Tampa up to Milwaukee. They, the Arizona Diamondbacks, I'm very surprised that they took out the best starting pitching staff in all of Major League Baseball. The Brewers have Freddie Peralta, Corbin Burns, that disgusting bullpen. And the Diamondbacks took care of them on the road in consecutive games. The Diamondbacks just came off last night out of beating the brains in of Clayton Kershaw and the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Diamondbacks are going to be a problem for the Dodgers. Like I said, they the Diamondbacks took out the best pitching staff in Major League Baseball. Do you think, yes, the Diamondbacks are not that seasoned in, in playoffs like the Dodgers are, because the Dodgers are in every single year. They go deep into October every single year. You think the Diamondbacks are going to be afraid of now, well, injured and now is not going to pitch again, Clayton Kershaw, and a bunch of rookies that the Dodgers are throwing out there because the Dodgers have had their own administrative offseason, offseason, off the field issues with their pitcher, Julio Rias. Walker Bueller still is obviously not going to be able to pitch because he's still recovering from Tommy John surgery. Tony Gonsolin out for the year. Dustin May, I forgot what happened to him. The Brewers are looking at this Dodgers starting pitching staff and they're like, oh my God. Oh, they can't wait to get up to the plate and bash their brains in. I, after after what happened last night, the Diamondbacks, I think, can very easily, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I think it's a higher probability than most people think. The Diamondbacks can sweep the LA Dodgers, put them to bed, sweet dreams, Boom, and the Diamondbacks go to the National League Championship Series. I think so. And then back with uh, the Braves. Not back, I'm talking about my Atlanta Braves. Well, everyone's focused on it. The Braves, the offense stumbled out of the block last night. They couldn't, they had opportunities. They couldn't score. That's frustrating. I don't think it needs to be uh, alarm bells. I didn't think the Braves were going to sweep the Phillies anyways. I still think the Braves are going to win in four games to move on to the National League Championship Series. The offense is going to get on track. Everyone's focused on that because the Phillies are like, you know, Philly is Philly is like really into themselves this year. They're like, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to we're going to go to October and finish what we started last year. It's like, yeah, I get it. You have really good fans and everything, but calm down. You're still the same team as last year. 
and the Braves are a better team, things are going to even out. The Phillies are going to be put to sleep, even though the Braves obviously have their own starting pitching staff issues. Everyone's excited for the Rangers and Orioles. I seriously think that the Texas Rangers are going to take out the Orioles in a sweep, maybe four games at most. The Baltimore Orioles are so, talking about the Diamondbacks being inexperienced, the Orioles are equally, probably more inexperienced because at least the Rangers have those big ticket free agents who have played deep in October, like Corey Seager. Rangers are going to take out the Orioles. I still think the Twins, the Minnesota Twins, can come back and beat the Houston Astros. I just, the Houston Astros are, are a machine in October. They, they All they do is win, move on, win, move on. They lost, but I still think the Twins can come back and beat and knock out the Houston Astros. And those are my 100% guaranteed predictions to fail or your money back. <laughs> and here we are talking about October baseball. But what's also really interesting is that when these guys are on the field, they're not just talking baseball. They're talking baseball in different languages. And our next guest is going to help us understand that a little bit better. This week, our special guest is Dr. Brendan O'Connor, associate professor at Arizona State University and author of Multilingual Baseball, Language Learning, Identity, and Intercultural Communication in the Transnational Game. Dr. O'Connor, bienvenido a Last Call Baseball. (laughs) <laughs> hey, that was good, Dorian. Thank you. In this book that you that had just you had just published, what I've read from it is English is not the monolith in just the history of baseball, whether Native American languages, Spanish, uh, Japanese, Korean, etc. Specifically, I know you've done a lot of field research in Latin America. Do you ever find that some of these developmental leagues down in Latin America, the kids themselves? have trouble communicating with each other because Spanish in America, we know someone from the South may have trouble understanding someone from Boston or Chicago, but in Latin America, Spanish is even more varied. We're talking about different, different dialects, different languages. Have you ever come across that where some of the players who theoretically speak Spanish still can't or have trouble communicating with each other? I wouldn't say that they have trouble communicating with each other. It does. It is very challenging, um, at least based on based on the research I've done, for native English speakers who are, you know, in baseball, they're second language speakers of Spanish. Maybe they've studied Spanish in in school. You know, there are quite a few English speaking players who have started to make more of an effort to communicate with um, Spanish speaking teammates. But, you know, often the variety of Spanish or the dialect of Spanish, like you said, that they encounter when they're hanging out with teammates from the the Dominican Republic or Cuba is pretty different from what they've been taught in school. So there's a real learning curve for, for guys from the U.S. who grew up as English speakers who are then not only learning more Spanish, but learning to adapt to, you know, Caribbean Spanish, for example. Spanish speakers, um, you know, I think they understand each other pretty well. I mean, there are lots of regional differences, like you mentioned, with different varieties of Spanish, but not, not to the point where they're not like mutually intelligible. But, you know, what is what is interesting and what I talk about in part of the book is they notice those differences, right? Whether it's different words that they use for certain things um, or, you know, just different, different features of, of sound of the accent, they notice those things. And then those things can become 
kind of like markers of what makes them different from each other because you know dominicans cubans venezuelans colombians like these are all you know these are all um people from nations with very distinct histories of social and political as well as linguistic development and um you know i think the the language differences sometimes are sort of used to identify people's teammates socially, you know, but I, I also think it's different depending on where you come from. Like there's a ton of Dominicans, right. And there's a ton of Venezuelans. So if you're Cuban and you're surrounded by all these guys, or if you're Mexican and you're surrounded by all these guys, you might feel like, you know, you know, you're in the minority. So your, your own way of speaking Spanish might be getting swamped by these other forms of Spanish. I remember a, a Cuban minor league pitcher telling me, like, yeah, when I talk to my mom, she tells me I don't even sound like a Cuban anymore. Like my my Spanish has turned has turned Dominican. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> One more question or following on the again the differentiations between Spanish and all of Latin America is you're a Kansas City Royals fan, and the Royals have a lot of Latin players, specifically from Venezuela. And I think you guys have a couple of from the DR. But pinpointing on one player, not to not to pick on him, but just to say that the, the Puerto Rican players always interest me in the sense the Royals have uh, Nelson Nelson Velasquez. He's Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. In your experience working out in the field and you and your research, how do the Puerto Rican players, ostensibly Americans, but they are much more comfortable in Spanish, how do they interact with their Latin counterparts? Because they, I'm sure they feel much more Latin than they do. North American and and not just the language, but also how they interact with other Latin players, their brethren, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I mean, there's, you know, you could talk for a long time about the relationship between Puerto Rico and the mainland United States and also the whole kind of tangled history of English and Spanish in Puerto Rico. And I'm not, I mean, there are people who who research that and I'm not an expert on it by any means, but I think it is, I mean, I think it is really interesting. Yeah, Nelson Velasquez, Emmanuel Rivera, who's now on the Diamondbacks, is Puerto Rican as well. You know, one story that comes to mind is about Carlos Correa. So I was interviewing for the book a guy who was an executive with the Astros when they drafted Correa. And one of the things he was talking about, you know, uh, Spanish-speaking players and learning English and sort of players who you know, from different language backgrounds who try to bridge that gap. And one of the things he said was that um, Correa growing up in Puerto Rico, like was convinced that he was going to be a star from an early age. Right. And even though it's kind of a, um, a very contested relationship, there is this presence of English, you know, as a, as a hegemonic language in Puerto Rico and, and, and an awareness of that. And so according to this executive, Kevin Goldstein is the guy's name. Um, he, uh, Correa told his parents when he was in high school, he was like, Hey, like, I, like, you got to get me an English tutor. Like I need to improve my English. Like, you know, whatever I'm getting in school, isn't going to do it. I got to be ready to be a star basically in the United States. And so you know, he when I was talking to 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 Kevin, he singled out Correa as somebody who maybe, you know, maybe in part because he was from Puerto Rico, which has this always kind of in, in the shadow of English in terms of its relationship with the mainland US and the educational system, um, sort of had this foresight to know that like 
the more of a head start I can get on English, basically, the better prepared I'm going to be for, um, you know, for, for being a superstar in the U.S. It's interesting you said that about some players, uh, North American players learning Spanish. I, the first person that comes to mind is Joey Votto, who is obviously <laughs> not who he, I think technically he might be Latin because he, he probably has Italian roots, but he doesn't speak Spanish. Dr. O'Connor, what made you go to focus your research on linguistics in baseball? Because most people who do research in baseball, they'll go the sabermetric route. What made you decide, I want to know about the, the language of baseball or the languages of baseball? Where does that come yeah. from? Well, I mean, the linguistics came first, right? So I'm, you know, I'm trained, I'm trained as a linguist. My job is I'm a professor at Arizona State and I'm a linguistic anthropologist. And most of most of the research I do, you know, both now and in the past has not been about baseball. Most of it has been about education. Um, and I'm really interested in the dynamics of education for bilingual bilingual children, immigrant families in the United States. I've focused um, largely on English and Spanish. Most of my professional life and my research has been in, in Arizona and Texas, so states with pretty visible um, you know, immigrant presences and also histories, histories of immigration and histories of bilingualism. So you know, I thought about, uh, you know, I thought about language and identity and social relationships and politics for, for a long time. And I've studied those things and written about those things, but I also love baseball. You know, I, um, I've always been a huge baseball fan. I grew up maybe an hour and a half from Cooperstown and in upstate New York. So, you know, I remember going to the hall of fame as a kid and my dad taking me down to Yankee stadium, uh, to see games, um, going down to Florida to watch the Royals in spring training when they were down there hitting stadiums all up and down the East coast, many of which are closed now. I mean, Olympic stadium in Montreal, three rivers in Pittsburgh, the old, the, the vet in Philly, all these places. So, um, you know, I, 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 I grew up in a real baseball loving family. And a few years ago, I started kind of collecting story. You know, I'm very interested in not just in language itself, but in kind of people's opinions about language, about how the media talks about language and bilingualism, about how the United States, like it says in the introduction of the book, has always in some ways tried to pretend that it's a mono monolingual place, that it's just an English place, but it's always been, you know, a hotbed of of, of linguistic diversity. So it occurred to me kind of like you were you were saying when we were chatting a few minutes ago that baseball uh, could be a lens to kind of look at some of these questions about language and identity and social change and demographic shift in the United States. So um, I kind of started collecting these stories. So, you know, um, the conclusion of the book has a bunch of these stories. So all the different reactions to Ichido when he first came to the United States and people's fascination with this like exotic, like Japanese speaker, you know, like that he was presented as such an enigma and so foreign and, um, and then all the way up to, um, you know, the Red Sox announcer criticizing Masahiro Tanaka for using an interpreter on the mound, you know, lots and lots of these little controversies that would pop up. I remember when, you know, Mike Schmidt said something about how Odubel Herrera for the Phillies 
was never going to be a leader because he didn't speak English well enough to connect with his teammates, right? So the it, it was a lot of the time it was this like off the cuff stuff, but but the power of of sociolinguistics is you get one of these little off the cuff remarks and you can kind of you know you peel back a layer and say okay well where's that coming from right what's underneath and so you know i did i i, I collected a bunch of these kind of like journalistic stories or, or media representations of bilingualism in baseball oh you know like the players weekend jerseys where they have names in different languages a lot of the time right all that stuff and then it it occurred to me well i'm you know i'm in arizona i could i could I could go meet some people, right? Which is, this is a convenient place to be if you want to do research on baseball. So I was fortunate enough to get invited to spend some time at the uh, the A's and the Royals facilities here um, in the Phoenix area um, during the instructional league a couple of years ago. And then based on those connections, um, I was invited to go down to the Dominican and, and uh, check out the, uh, the academy system down there. So yeah, it was just kind of, you know, one thing led to another, but really um, me figuring out, yeah, I'm not a statistician, right? I'm not a sabermetric kind of guy, although I read, you know, I read fan graphs religiously, but right. I, I I sort of figured that's one of the great things about baseball, I think, is that there's so many different angles you can take on the game and, and you know, and there's a whole history of writers who have, who have approached baseball, like you said, as a way to understand issues and developments that are much bigger than baseball. So I figured this could be my own little uh, contribution to it. Well said. I like that. I want to go back to your roots. You said you're from upstate New York and I haven't been any more, any further north than Hudson Valley, which is by the way, a gorgeous place. But when I think of upstate New York, I think of in baseball terms, that's like Toronto Blue Jays territory, Boston Red Sox, maybe, and obviously the Yankees. How in the world does a good young man from upstate New York become a Kansas City Royals fan? Yeah, it's a good question, man. I um, It happened so long ago that I don't honestly remember. I loved George Brett as a kid. I mean, I remember when they won the series in 1985, I was five years old and it was already, I mean, it was like a big deal for me. So that tells me that at least in my young mind, I'd already been a fan for quite a while up to that point, you know? So I don't remember exactly how it happened, but um, I, you know, I, I always had weird sports loyalties as a, as a, as a kid. My dad is a, is a huge Yankees fan, huge Mickey Mantle fan from his childhood. Both of my sisters are big Yankees fans. You do get the occasional Red Sox fan up there. Uh, Mets, Mets fans as well. You sort of get Mets and Yankees fans sprinkled, sprinkled around upstate. Blue Jays fans very rarely, although my brother is is a diehard Blue Jays fan. And a few years ago, we were in Vermont for his bachelor weekend, and we were hiking up in the Green Mountains, and there was hardly anybody around. It's this very beautiful remote remote area. And, you know, this is pretty far north. This is even up close to the Canadian border. And there was an older guy who was hiking, and we kind of stopped and were chatting with him. And my brother was wearing a Blue Jays cap, and after a few minutes into the conversation, the guy just stopped and he was like, Blue Jays, what the hell? <laughs> so I was like, totally, totally out of place. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know where the Royals thing came from. Uh, I have often wished that I had chosen a different team, but I feel like once you choose your team, you're stuck for life. 
Yeah, you're right. I, I had another guest, uh, the, a Catholic priest, telling him that I think that you need to there need to be some kind of symbolic conversion if you're gonna if you're gonna change teams because it's <laughs> it's for life, you know. Yeah, man. There's Bill Simmons had a funny article a few years ago about like when should you be allowed to switch your loyalty to a <laughs> to a different team. <laughs> it's a, it's funny to think about, but no, I I love the Royals. I've always loved the Royals. And you guys, I, I mean, at least in the mid 2010s, yeah, it was a heck of a run. You guys had back to back World Series appearances. It was, it and was. E- and even more exciting, you had the Marlins fan sitting behind yes. home plate and making yes. and making the, the visual spectacle even better with that beautiful with, orange jacket. With that orange jersey, the Marlins guy. Yeah. Um, the Mar- Marlins man with the visor and everything was a whole phenomenon among Royals fans at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. that was funny. That was really funny. I do want I want to let everyone know that all that only you do speak Spanish. You speak English, obviously. I don't know. Maybe you speak other languages as well. But the book is not just focused on Latin America and Spanish. You also talk about the, the Asian languages, Korean, Japanese, and uh, Mandarin in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Are there any phrases in any foreign language, baseball phrases, that you think are brilliant that we should incorporate in Major League Baseball English? Oh, that's a funny question. I don't, man, I wish I had one for you. I don't know. I don't know enough about any of those other languages to say. And even in Spanish, you know, it's interesting that there's kind of like two sets of baseball words. There's there's a set that's pretty much directly borrowed from English, you know, so you can say dugout for dugout and you can say umpire for umpire. Um, or then there's the other set of Spanish words, which are not English borrowings. So I was going to say like more properly Spanish words like arbitro is a word for for umpire in Spanish, right? I don't know. I'm trying to remember. You know, uh, one that I came I came across, I didn't know this until I was, I'm a big fan of the Latin American winter leagues. And yeah. occasionally on YouTube, they'll show the Nicaraguan winter league, which is like, it's like probably, I would say like second division because the best winter leagues are the Mexican and the Dominican Republic. And then you have like the Venezuelan and Nicaraguan and yeah. everybody else. The way they say home runs is uh, quadrangular. Which I think would you would, oh, yeah, yeah, you you would do like square. before, yeah. yeah, it would be like four bases, and I'm like, that's because they also say hongrong, but they always they say Hong quadrangular, yeah. and I'm oh, like, that's, that's an interesting way. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah, there was a funny story about. Um, I think I think it made it into the book that one of the guys, one of the guys who had coached in played or coached in Korea or Taiwan, I forget which one it was now. What. <laughs> Like he said, you know, when I first got there, like sometimes like the English, the English words that are borrowed, they'll be like kind of the same as what you would say in English, but not quite. Um, And so it creates this kind of uncanny, this uncanny feeling. So he said, you know, they were they were practicing. And when someone got a hit, he's like, they kept saying something that sounded like nice ball, like nice ball. And after a while, I was like, hey, what does that mean in Korean? I think it was Korean. And they were like, it's not Korean, it's English. It's like nice ball, right? So it is recognizably English, but it's also recognizably like not something a native English speaker would say on a baseball field, right? So I always think it's funny that like things do get passed around, things do get borrowed and transfer from context to context, but they also change, right? I mean, they're, they're never they're never exactly the same once they get transplanted. You obviously are an academic. You're at a great institution, Arizona ASU. 
And I have an understanding of how academia works. You've done a lot of field research. And for those of you who don't know, those need to be funded by, by applying for grants or et cetera, whether it's with the university or external uh, organizations. How hard is it to be taken seriously when you're writing a grant and saying, and you have the word sports or baseball in it? Because <laughs> normally you're like, oh, I want to go research this yeah. lost tribe in Guatemala or <laughs> the the Paleolithic era in Antarctica. But you're like, no, I want to go learn it. I want to go study linguistics <laughs> and baseball. Well, it's all about your audience. You know, I mean, I was fortunate. We have a... Um there's an institute at, at Arizona State called the Global Sport Institute, which is all about the study of sports and society. There are, believe it or not, entire journals devoted to sports and society and the sociology of sport. Um, there's a journal that is a journal called Nine out of University of Nebraska that's just about baseball scholarship. There are journals that are that's a hotbed of baseball soccer, because it's the perfect soccer. weather yeah, all year yeah, round yeah, yeah. in Nebraska. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, academia, right, baseball might, might not seem like the most traditional topic of study, but honestly, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of scholarship on, on sports, and it's something that a lot of people are interested in. You know, I mean, the baseball, the baseball project, Almost, almost everybody's interested in it. You know, I would say even more than the other research that I do, um, which, like I said, is is focused on schools, which I think is really important. But um, you know, baseball is something that people relate to in a lot of different ways, and a lot of people are interested in. Um, I, I will say too, you know, the, the the image of anthropology that people had from the past of like, oh, you have to go to some sort of uh, you know, faraway place and you have to sort of study something that's considered, you know, very exotic or esoteric. It's, I, I like to think that we've moved away from that somewhat. I mean, um, we really, uh, when I say we, I guess I mean anthropologists in general, there was a lot of, you know, racism and colonialism behind a lot of those, that those tendencies in the past, like, oh, I'm going to go find these, you know, these other people and find out about what they're like, right? It did a lot of damage to to communities in different you know different parts of the U.S. and the world. So, I think you know I'm not saying that we're 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 totally over those tendencies, but at the same time, we tend to think of anthropology as I think a, a perspective or a set of tools for just kind of understanding like human life and human existence. And you know, to some extent, I think people see a baseball clubhouse or a practice field as just as legitimate an area for study as, um, you know, a much more traditional, traditional society or something like that. I love it. I, I am publicly pushing for GSI to give you more grants so you can go oh, sweet. to Dominican Republic, okay. Venezuela, Mexico, Nicaragua. I'm going to put him on notice. <laughs> how, Dr. O'Connor, how excited are you for the City Caribe, the Caribbean series in Miami in February? Are you going to make an appearance? Oh, with your notepad and your microphone. I don't microphone. know. I haven't been to Miami in a long time. You have to come. <laughs> Did you see the World Baseball Classic earlier will, this year? Yeah, I went to one of the games down at Chase Field. They had, oh, yeah. they had the group play here in Phoenix. No offense to Arizona. You yeah. have to come to the really? Miami group. Because that, as you know, that all the I'm Latin sure groups are outside of Mexico. Yeah. Uh, Mexico was the yeah. only Latin team in the Phoenix along with the U.S. But all the right. other Latin teams... Puerto Rico, yeah, yeah, yeah. Venezuela, DR, Nicaragua, et cetera. And it's going to be now, it's going to be uh, Curacao is going to be there, Panama. Oh, nice. It's going to be insane. I'm 
oh, me and crazy. my we're all very excited for February and yeah um, oh that's awesome you, and GSI please give a grant to Dr. O'Connor so you can go and <laughs> so research can, so can go the to, Caribbean series in February in Miami in February yeah exactly there's worse that, places that, uh, to be than Miami in February there are yeah you know I used to um before I went to graduate school um I I worked for a while with a a Cuban refugee resettlement program up in New York. And as part of that, we were an affiliate of an agency that was headquartered in Miami for obvious reasons. And as part of that job, I'd have to go down to Miami a couple times a year for meetings and trainings. And man, it was the best. It was like, it's such, it's such an amazing, it's an amazing city. Um, so, and I've been back a couple of times since, but it's been a while. Maybe this is a good excuse to go. Believe me, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. But we're going to take you away from ASU. I know there's going to be, there's going to be a, very, a lot of sadness, but we're going to say, Dr. O'Connor, you are now going to become the new general manager of the Kansas City Royals. What's one or two things Ooh. you would do with the team? Maybe it's maybe not just like an immediate, like trade this player, sign this player, but maybe it's the, the meta part of the Royals. Anything you want with your new powers as the general manager of your Kansas City Royals. Well... There's only really one thing on my mind, which is signing Bobby Witt Jr. to an extension to keep him in Kansas City for the rest of his life. And and teaching uh, him Spanish. And teaching him Spanish. He might have learned Spanish already. I'm not sure if Bobby knows Spanish, but he's he's surrounded by a lot of Spanish speaking teammates. And, you know, he's a smart guy. He's got he's got Michael Garcia to the right of him there in the infield. So you know, they might be speaking some Spanish, but uh, no, uh, money is no object, Bobby. When I am the GM, I will do whatever it takes to get you locked up in Kansas City forever. Apart from that, um, I, can, I can live with everything else. <laughs> you know, I'm a little surprised about the Royals, their struggles. I actually did watch, I would probably say of their first 10 games this year, I probably watched like five of them. And then I just didn't watch them for obvious reasons because they just ended wow. up losing 100 games. But now with the new, yeah, I, I think that he still has the new owner car smell, John, whatever his name is, the billionaire guy. And John I, and, Sherman, yeah, correct, yeah. yeah, he bought it about four years ago, and I was like, oh wow, the Royals are going to be a, a a team to contend with in the American mm -hmm. League Central, along with the, the American League as a whole, and that really hasn't come to fruition. So I've been a little disappointed with your boss, uh, John, with not. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Royals fans have been disappointed. It's 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 hard to say. I mean, all I can say is I, I I hope for the best. You know, I there's a lot of young guys in the system, and we're waiting. We're sort of waiting for them to develop. You get these glimmers of hope, like Cole Reagans has been super awesome since we got him uh, from the Rangers and the Chapman deal. So, you know, uh, and then a lot of our recent draft picks are just kind of waiting to see. Um, guys are going to get healthy, if guys are going to be able to perform consistently, but uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a bummer. Um, this, this, this season especially was a real bummer. I, <laughs> I think it was, it, the saving grace was when, was when Bobby finally broke out because all Royals fans were hearing for the first couple months of the season was how good everybody's batted ball quality was like, and it was just like, we're just unlucky. We're just unlucky. We're hitting the ball so hard. Like Witt's hitting it hard. Melendez is hitting it hard. Pasquantino, you know, and Pasquantino gets hurt. Um, Witt's still kind of scuffling. And then when he just exploded after the break, it was like, okay, so that was, 
<laughs> you know, that wasn't that wasn't totally that wasn't totally uh, a pipe dream. There actually was something behind all of those all of those hard hit balls. But I mean, it has been fun to watch the infield this year. I think Garcia, Garcia and Witt are so much fun to watch you know, on the left side of the infield. I do miss Nicky Lopez. Nicky Lopez was one of my favorites. So he's on the Braves now, but I loved, uh, you know, I mean, Massey's been, Massey's been good at second base too, but I used to love watching, uh, watching Nicky and Bobby turn those double plays. So, but I don't know if Nicky gets into a few playoff games uh, with that Braves team, that'll be pretty fun for him too. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully the Braves go all the way and uh, win the world series. And then, you know, Nicky can, Flash his ring to his friends yeah, in, back your, in, back in Kansas City. Uh, makes your allegiance as clear. Yeah, man. All my all my friends who are Braves fans are are. I mean, they're just like a they're a freaking steamroller right now. Yeah, fingers crossed. I it, not to make this like a playoff clear, like just it's just there's the pitching. The only thing that make that concerns me is the the starting pitchers, but we'll uh, mm-hmm. with the health. But at the same time, I think a lot of other teams have the same starting pitcher injuries and stuff. But yeah, I also think you guys are going to score so much. It doesn't even matter. We'll see. <laughs> and if someone wants to see some Kansas City Royal games or just attend an ASU college baseball game in Tempe, mm. what's a good place for a local place, local places that you enjoy, whether it's to pick up some food, uh, drink, coffee, tea, whatever you like, what's some places you would recommend? So food wise, um, you know, the, where the Royals play is pretty far away from, I live in Phoenix and I work in Tempe, the Royals play in surprise, which is like way out in the Northwest part of the area. So I don't know that, uh, I don't know the restaurant scene out there quite as well, but if you're going to a game in or around Tempe, um, or anywhere in Phoenix, you know, there's whole bunch of spring training stadiums uh, pretty close to us. I highly recommend a restaurant called La Barquita, which is um, a Mexican restaurant run by a family, I believe, from Jalisco. We've been going there for years and years. Um, You know, my daughter's artwork and thank you notes are up on the walls. The place is always decorated for every holiday. And it's just about the best uh, mom and pop Mexican home cooking you can find in Phoenix. It's really phenomenal. For coffee, uh, I recommend Songbird Coffee and Tea House, um, which is pretty close to downtown Phoenix, to the downtown campus of ASU. Uh, great little locally run coffee shop in an old in in an old house um, with a, a a beloved cat with no tail that hangs around there all the time. So yeah, Songbird and La Barquita are my two my two top recommendations for Phoenix. Love it. I'm a big, big cat, big fan of cats. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great cat. (laughs) Dr. O'Connor. I want to thank you for your time and joining us this week. I really enjoyed this, having this conversation. Let us know where we can read some of your research and also grab a copy of your latest book. Yeah. So the book is called Multilingual Baseball. It was published by Bloomsbury. It is right now really expensive because it came out first in a hardcover and an electronic version intended for academic libraries. So that's a little bit of a bummer, but uh, you can try to get your li- local library to buy it, um, which is a thing a lot of people don't realize that you can do is request that your library purchase books. Or um, next fall, the um, not, yeah, next fall, the paperback is going to come out um, in fall of 2024, and that's going to be a lot more affordable. In the meantime, um, 
I've written a little bit about uh, baseball and linguistics online. So there's a piece on um, an anthropology blog called Sapiens, as in Homo sapiens, called What Does Baseball's Bilingualism Reveal, which is where I started working through some of these ideas. So um, I think that's probably a good place to start. And then, um, yeah, stay tuned for more. I'm, I'm starting potentially a new project with with another researcher who's done some research with minor leaguers uh, learning English here in the U.S. So we're going to see what comes of that. Gracias a Dr. O'Connor for joining us this week. I also want to thank this drink that's powered me through this week's episode. I'm going to have a quick one here. Hold on. It's called Mandatory Pumpkin. It's an ale brewed with pumpkin, cinnamon, clove, and nutmeg from a good American local brewery called Destination Unknown Beer Company in Bayshore, New York. Every time I hear the words Bayshore, I immediately associate it with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio's movie Wolf of Wall Street. Specifically, Margot Robbie's character, Naomi LaPaglia, I believe it was. Margot Robbie was just phenomenal in that movie. Her character is from Bayshore, and they have a very distinct accent from Long Island. I think she was, of course you already know, she was amazing in that movie. And talking about pumpkin drinks, no, you're not going to find me at your local coffee shop ordering a pumpkin spice latte. There are lines we have to draw, and that's it. Let's celebrate where we are. We're fall. We can have some pumpkin stuff here and there, but that's the line. And we've reached the end of the line of this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Last Call Baseball. Follow us on social media if you want. If you don't, keep drinking your pumpkin alcoholic drink. Be great and get home safe.